Patrick is sick today and he asked us to fill in to, for, for him and we can tell you that we're not holding a grudge. But it is risky. It is risky. This is not the first time that Christopher and I have subbed in for Patrick. In fact, we've done so on multiple occasions in Michigan where we became friends with the Meads so long ago. And uh, the, the, the Sunday prior to our departure to come to move, move to Tennessee, uh, Christopher and I actually delivered this sermon that we're going to deliver to you uh, now. We did it there in Michigan, and we hope that it will be uplifting to you. What I find significant about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it is no respecter of nationality, of race, of, net, of, of ethnicity. Uh, it shows no partiality among peoples. Uh, the gospel is for all. It unites us all together in one family that belongs to God. And I pray that this past week, as you were able to sit around your tables with your family and friends and loved ones that you were reflecting upon all the things that you were thankful for, I know that I did. Recently, I turned 50 years old, and I was asked what it felt like to reach that half-century mark. And my response is that life is good. God has blessed me with much, and though I recognize that there are likely fewer days ahead than there are behind, I will experience each one with a love of life, thanksgiving for being able to serve in anticipation of the journey that God has set before me. I pray that I can approach all of what is to come with grace. Uh, whether you're turning 50 or turning 20 in my case, uh, we should all pray for the confidence to approach our future with grace. Um, one reason why approaching our future with grace is important is because there are conditions we may encounter that we will not be familiar with or prepared for. Um, there are many in this world who live their days with no security and no protection. People who understand what it means to live in fear. Um, those thriving in a safe and comfortable society like we live in struggle to understand what living in fear actually means. Most of us don't know what it's like to be a Christian facing danger on a daily basis. Um, we go about our daily activities, we live in homes that shelter us from the elements, we usually have plenty of food, we have transportation, safe roads to travel on, and uh, we live in communities that ha promote law and order and even punish those who disrupt the peace of a well-ordered society. Now we don't think that there's anything wrong with living in security, indeed that's preferable to the alternative for sure, but this morning we ask you to briefly imagine what many in this world experience as their daily reality. And I'm speaking of their reality of living in constant fear and uncertainty about what the day ahead of them will bring. It's in these places and times, in these moments of uncertainty, that we can find some of the deepest and most meaningful expressions of faith, reliance, and dependence. Life is filled with troubles. Some are small and some are greater. Uh, people approach trouble in their lives in different ways. Some approach it with fear in their hearts and a deep disturbance, while others approach it with a sense of peace and confidence. We might wonder, what is the difference between those who approach their troubles in life with fear and those who approach it with peace? Um, what does one have that the other doesn't have? Maybe... Those at peace in the face of calamity 
are somehow immune from the harm and the suffering and the death. Obviously, that's not true. You know, rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Lauren's students get bonus points if they know where that text is from. Um, godly people suffer pain and death the same as ungodly people. We understand that God can intercede for his purposes, and we often ask for such intervention, but we understand that ultimately none of us will escape this earth with our lives, with our physical lives. So what gives those living in constant fear and uncertainty a perspective that provides them with strength, hope, and encouragement despite their suffering and their troubles? And it doesn't have to be physical distress that threatens us or ties us up in knots and I'm going to embarrass Chris for a few moments here with a story from his youth. But the story is really about what was going on with me at the time. We were living in Michigan. I was in a high-stress role as a vice president of a small Christian college. Christopher was perhaps four or five years old at the time, and Jack was just a, a few years behind him. And things were very stressful at work. And I remember at the end of the day on one Friday evening, after having a full week of intense frustration, I got in my car to drive home. And I remember sputtering to myself the entire way home. Now, I've heard all the advice about you know, when you're driving home from your workplace, you need to find a tree that you tack all your troubles and frustrations to because you don't want to bring it all home with you. And that is good and that is sound advice. It just wasn't working for me on that particular day. I brought it home with me. So I walked in the door and I remember my wife had just placed a few pans on the stove to begin cooking dinner when I declared to her and to the boys, Call the babysitter, we're going out for dinner. Now I'm going to stop the story right there because I need to talk to the guys in the audience for the moment, the young fellows and really any of you, and that is to say that this is not how you should ask a girl out on a date. I'm not modeling anything with this story. But my wife, knowing me very well and being very intuitive, put aside what she had planned for dinner. She called the babysitter, and then she told me I had to go pick up the babysitter, and I was bringing Christopher with me. So I put Christopher in the car, and I headed toward the babysitter's house to pick her up, and wouldn't you know it, as I was driving along, I continued to sputter to myself about things that had been going on at work. Christopher sits there in complete silence, knowing that Daddy is pretty upset about something. We're about halfway to the sitter's house when Christopher's silence was broken and he said something and I ignored him, completely lost in my own thoughts. A few moments later, when a few moments went by and he spoke again and this time I heard him say, Daddy? And I barked, what, Christopher? And I looked over at my five-year-old son and he had his hands out in front, cupped out in front of him like this. And he said slowly, Daddy, do you know that God has the whole world in his hands? <laughs> I almost crashed the car. Because <laughs> I realized at that moment that I had allowed stuff 
to completely take control of my mind, tie me up in distress, and through the mouth of a five-year-old, God spoke to me. My five-year-old self was the boss, what can I say? Uh, but as I, was, as I was reciting my Sunday school lessons, you know, those who come to know their God know that when facing life's trouble, there is no greater place of peace than in the shelter of the Most High. Um, the youth have memorized Hebrews 12.1, um, which references a cloud of witnesses. Um, these witnesses are described in Hebrews 11 uh, as having faced great trials in their lives unlike anything we face in our time or place. But despite their suffering, they found great peace in the arms of a Savior who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who we now know endured the cross, scorned shame, who ascended to heaven and sits at the right throne of God, um, and who to this day is an advocate for those who place their faith in and trust in him. That cloud of witnesses described in Hebrews is about, mostly about Old Testament peeps. You got prophets, Moses, Joseph, etc. But later come others who join that cloud of witnesses, and one of those is a man named Paul, a messenger by God's direct appointment. Paul was a man who faced great distress during a very tumultuous life, but found comfort and peace in the shelter of God regardless. We can see it in his writings and in his story, and perhaps the most revealing evidence we have is in the last letter he wrote to Timothy, his protege. This is a letter that we refer to as 2 Timothy, and I encourage you to turn there to follow along with the story as we go through. Paul had come to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. Timothy's mother was a Jewess and a believer, and his father was a Greek. Timothy was really highly regarded for a young man. So Paul wanted to take him along with him on his journey. And we'll never really know everything that happened between Paul and Timothy that brought about this intense bond of trust and love that existed between uh, him and his young disciple. But this letter gives us a glimpse of what Paul remembered of that relationship and as he drew near to his destiny. It's been quoted that everyone reveals a piece of their soul in their writings, in their letters. And uh, we can see that this is especially true with a mentor who's leaving a piece of himself behind with a beloved student or protege. Paul had deep memories of this, of this relationship and his last letter was spurred on by those memories. In uh, 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 8, Paul writes, I thank God, whom I serve, as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. Night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. He's speaking to Timothy, obviously. <clears throat> Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the good news by the power of God. 
Paul was a great teacher and defender of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's understand the setting here. Paul is now an old man. He's now six, it is now 65 to 67 AD. Some 30 years earlier, Paul had his conversion experience, which God used through his power and wisdom to change the course of, of, of history of the church. Now, though, he's an old man. He's in chains. He's most likely in the Roman teen prison in Rome. Not a house prison. Not this time. This was a much darker period in history for those who claimed to be followers of Christ. Some years earlier, he had written to the Corinthians, or to the Christians, I'm sorry, in this city in Rome, telling them about how he intended to come to see and visit them on his way to Spain. But that's not how it worked out. He ended up coming to Rome in a different manner than he had envisioned. No, his path instead led him to go there as a prisoner to the dungeons, waiting to be sentenced. A sentence that he knew this time would bring him death. And with that end approaching, he's faced with a life of memories with his student, a protege to carry on the work. And so he remembers on purpose. He remembers the memories of his heroes. We all have heroes. Um, as a young man, Paul was known as Saul, and Saul had heroes. In particular, a rabbi named Gamaliel. I get it right that time? That's Gamaliel. Okay, you did right. Well done. <clears throat> in Acts 22, Paul said, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you today. Gamaliel was so well respected as a teacher of the law at the time that it was said when he died that the glory of the Torah died with him. Um, many students sat at his feet wanting, like, thinking to themselves, I want to grow up to be like Gamaliel. Paul was one of those students. He wanted to be like his honored teacher. Um, and Saul had ambition to do so. He says in a letter to the Galatians, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And along with Saul's ambition was a head start. In Philippians, he writes, if you want to put confidence in flesh, I can match you. On the eighth day, I was circumcised. My people were the people of Israel, my tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. Saul grew up with heroes and ambitions, and he remembered them. And he remembered also the memory of his pain. Painful memories are often created when we're young. Some of them come when we're weak. Some of them come at moments when we feel strong and confident and we're somehow knocked down. Some come from times of suffering and despair. But with pain comes learning, and Paul had painful memories from which to learn. And one such memory was the pain of the threat to the only world that he had known and that he had believed to be true. You see, he had a very carefully constructed world. He was sharp. He was well-educated within that world. And he saw his world being deeply threatened. He understood that if this new sect that made these claims about this Jesus being the Messiah, that if that sect were to succeed, then his world would come crashing down as he knew it. 
That was a painful thought and a painful memory for him. And he remembered the pain of discovery. We know ourselves that the discovery of something new can be frightening. It frightens us daily when we we have the unknown in front of us. New discoveries can bring change. And change can be painful and fearful, especially if that change threatens everything we know. No pain can be as painful as discovering how wrong you were when you were so certain that you were right. Understand that Saul was much like us. He wanted everything settled. He wanted it down in creed form, unable to be questioned. He wanted all his beliefs and practices to be settled completely and entirely and able to be defended at a moment's notice. People who came along and who were a threat to what he thought he knew were a threat to his world. So Saul, like so many before him, had put his faith in his creed, in his plans, and in his ambitions. Now, remember, this is a different time and place from what we know. So the exercise of Saul's faith looks foreign to us in this country. Saul went from house to house, dragging off men and women who he deemed to be a threat, throwing them into prison because he believed, or because they believed in the Jesus that so disturbed him. On one occasion noted in Acts, he stood with nodding approval as the stones flew at Stephen, who proclaimed this gospel message. Paul, or Saul, saw and heard Stephen looking up at the sky and saying, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. To Saul, that was impossible. This Jesus was dead. The Messiah-to-be was not a Messiah at all. Therefore, this deceived man had to be killed before he would deceive others in Saul's mind. So Saul gave his consent and stood approvingly as they threw the stones and killed him. The trouble for Saul was that if Jesus was the Messiah, then that would have meant that Saul was wrong. Saul's parents would have been wrong. Saul's teachers would have been wrong. Saul's heroes would have been wrong. And the law, as Saul understood it, would have been wrong. His world, as he knew it, would have fallen apart. He was so entrenched in what he believed that he could not handle or even entertain the thought that he was wrong. And that blind devotion to a false truth drove him to do things he would come to regret. It's no wonder that he wrote later, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. It was a painful discovery to discover how wrong he had been. But in the midst of that painful discovery came new birth, new life, and he remembered the moment that defined the rest of his life. In Acts 9, Meanwhile, Saul was still making murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In his fear, Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. 
He remembers being called by God's grace, which he didn't deserve. He remembers the moment that he was no longer to be called Saul, but henceforth he would be called Paul. And because he heard God's voice, the world has never been the same, and he changed Timothy's life also. Paul tells Timothy, his pupil, remember who you are. Remember where you've been. Paul says of Timothy in Philippians, he says, I have no one else like him. So many serve out of their own selfish interests, but Timothy serves because he loves Jesus Christ. You know that Timothy has proven himself. You can see the pride that the mentor takes in his young protege. Yet the younger protege was distressed. He had become tired, weary, filled with timidity, and some would say with good cause. This is what Paul did to Timothy. It wasn't fair. What Paul did was that when things in the church got bad enough, he sent Timothy. You might ask, what does bad enough mean? (laughs) Well, look at it this way. When the church was on the verge of splitting into factions, when they were fighting over which preacher to follow, when they were choosing sides over issues and opinions causing turmoil and fellowship problems, when arrogance and ego and pride had seized their hearts, when there was scandal due to the overt sin of the members of the church, when there was war within the church over spiritual gifts, when they were suing one another in court, when there were factions among them distracting them away from the gospel message of Christ and his sacrifice at Calvary, well, you can read about it. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul decides to send Timothy, his beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to go and to straighten them all out and to fix things. An impossible mission. There's evidence that Timothy never fully recovered from that experience. A church fight isn't easily resolved without the presence of God in the hearts of the people. Um, It takes people who are willing to surrender their hearts to God for peace to come in the midst of chaos. The people of Corinth were not there yet, Um, and Timothy was young and unconfident. Tentative, not knowing what to do, and surrounded by hard hearts, Timothy was ready to leave the ministry. By the time you get to 2 Corinthians, things have gotten worse and so bad that Titus has replaced Timothy at Corinth. So there are your two people in this story. Paul, God's messenger, an aging missionary, an aging teacher who's speaking out of a a circumstance that would immobilize most people in the grip of terror and fear there in that dungeon, and Timothy, the student, the protege. But Paul wasn't quite finished yet. He had one final act that he wanted to complete. He had one final sermon that he wanted to deliver to his protege. And in the midst of catastrophe, he writes, chooses every word very carefully. So what does Paul tell Timothy? He tells him, you remember the message You remember the memories. You remember who you are. You remember where you came from. Now, Timothy, you remember the message. An old man who was ready to rest in the arms of his Savior and who wanted to pass the torch on to a younger man. The young man 
who was beaten down, who was burdened, who was tempted to quit. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you know what it is like to look at the circumstances of your own life and you've been beaten down and you've wanted to give up. What advice do you give? What advice do you receive? Well, first of all, Paul says to stay on task. Remember who you are. Remember where you came from. Remember your task. Pain for any lesser reason simply isn't worth it. Paul writes about suffering. He says, don't be ashamed. The pain is worth it if if you remember the message and for what you are suffering. Don't turn away as so many others have. Don't get sidetracked. Guard what you have learned. So Paul writes about soldiers, and he writes about athletes. He writes about farmers. They all have their task. They all stayed on their job. You've got a job, Timothy. You stay on it. You understand the message and how important it is. You know it's too important to be ignored, for it's the very salvation of mankind. Don't give up. Don't get distracted. Don't become tempted to give in to temptation. Stay on task. And he says to remember what is important. Paul says that what's important is Jesus Christ. And it's a recurring theme throughout this letter. In chapter 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Why is this reminder so important? Isn't that something that should just be obvious to Timothy? Well, it's because we become so easily distracted by trivial things that this is necessary. Satan's busy distracting us. He's hard at work distracting us. We know this in our century and in our time. He's trying to distract us daily. Satan's going to continue to do that, to do anything to get us to pay attention to other than that which is of first importance. Timothy, if you don't keep your eyes on what's most important, then you're going to become weak, and before you know it, you will be going to jail, and it's there that you will give up. And before the end of Hebrews 13, where do we find Timothy but in jail? And you see, Satan knows our weaknesses, and he incessantly tries to distract us. In Fourth Avenue, he's going to do the same to us if we let him. We can't let him do that. For Paul, to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead meant that we remember his sacrifice, the atonement for sin that it brings, that we remember that death is the just penalty for our transgressions and God being the righteous judge that he is stepped down and he paid that pe- the price and the penalty for us on the cross. But most importantly, remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead means that we no longer serve a dead founder. No, we serve a risen living Savior. And he sets up his kingdom in our hearts today. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You remember this, Timothy. Don't forget it. Paul tells Timothy to keep Christ in the front of his mind. Otherwise, he will not be able to withstand the suffering and the despair that this world will bring into his life. As people are, are people around you trying to shake your focus away from what is of first importance? It's not impossible sometimes also that we are our our own worst enemy. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, 
to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside the myths. This frequent stuff that Paul says about teaching and truth and myth are all deeply ingrained in Paul's story because he was one of those who refused to hear the truth of Christ. But now he tells Timothy, remember Christ. Uh, Timothy, our issues and controversies swarming from every angle, making it impossible for the message to be heard? Remember Jesus Christ. Has mindless debate and gossip taken center stage? Avoid it and remember Jesus Christ. Timothy, are you faced with moral and spiritual compromise? Flee the temptations. Remember Jesus Christ and set an example of purity. And Paul writes on, are you faced with tough times? Are evil men surrounding you? Are imposters deceiving you? Is the truth of the gospel being pushed out and trampled on? You remember Jesus Christ. You remember and you remind them of these things too. Now things may get real bad, Timothy. Of this you can be sure. But through it all, remember who you are. Remember where you came from. Remember your faith in Christ which leads to salvation. And in the dark dungeon somewhere in Rome, the teacher writes a letter to the student whom he loves as his own son. And the grand old teacher and the apostle, after the beatings, the time in prison, the stonings, the famine, the shipwrecks, being abandoned, after all of it, Paul's heart beats strong and pours out in one last writing as he encourages his young protege to be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In chapter 4, 6, and 8, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and my time of departure has come. I have fought the fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Can you just sense the place of peace that the old apostle has found in the midst of calamity and despair and suffering and hopelessness? He, he certainly has needs. He goes on to list them. Make every effort to come to me soon, he says to Timothy. When you come, bring the cloak that I left at Troas and the books, especially the parchments. He even warns Timothy, beware of Alexander the coppersmith. He did me much harm. He vigorously opposed our teaching. Alexander must have had a really hard heart and taken some harsh actions against the gospel of Jesus Christ to be immortalized in this warning to Timothy. Only Luke is left with me now. My first defense here in Rome didn't go well. Everyone deserted me. I pray that God will overlook that. God stood with me and the message was proclaimed and he delivered me from the lion's mouth. But I know I'm going to be going home soon. Timothy, make every effort to come to me before winter. So what we're asking you this morning if you knew that you had the opportunity to craft one last message to someone you loved or a group of people that you love dearly, 
like a letter, an email, or a really long text message, but you knew that your end was near and you likely wouldn't have another chance. Maybe you're in a time of great anxiety, change, or suffering, or chaos, but you had an opportunity to share with others one last time, what would your letter say? What would your song be, your sermon? What memories would you choose to share? What message dwells in your heart that you would choose to deliver? Mark, I'm going to ask you to bring your team back on stage as we close out this morning. For Paul, it was easy. Um, He knew what he was to say. It was the greatest reminder that one could ever deliver, regardless of the circumstances in which they would find themselves. He wore the breastplate of Christ as a natural part of himself, and he encourages us to do the same thing. Remember what is of first importance. You remember God's grace. You remember Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. He is a risen Savior. Bind this message to yourselves today, and you will have peace in whatever circumstance you find yourselves.